Hello, everyone, and welcome to, you know where you are, the state of the universe. You might be wondering, man, what state is the universe in? Well, listen here. I can maybe tell you the answer to that question. If you give me two hours of your time, and you come back every week, and you devote another two hours of your time, and maybe in the course of a year, you will have understand one half of 1% of the state of the universe. Maybe. You know? That's if I don't die in a car crash in that time, because that could happen. Welcome to the show. My name is Brendan. I haven't died yet. I might have actually by the time you're listening to this, because that's how the internet works. It's like it's preserved forever. So by the time you're listening to this, it could be 20, 220, 2220 the year, and I would be dead by then. Maybe my consciousness is preserved in like a chip somewhere. But as far as I know, at that stage, I'm definitely going to be dead. For sure. No doubt about it. So if you're listening at this, what is this noise? Don't come at me with that. Jesus Christ. My computer just... Actually, I think it tried to tell me something. I think my computer tried to tell me that I was right about the storing consciousness thing because it made like this noise and then this thing popped up and it was Apple and Apple was confirming my suspicions and I got you Apple. We're on the same page on that front. But welcome here. I appreciate you tuning in. My name is Brendan. I already said that. This week on the show, we got Nate Stewart on and Nate is a good friend of mine, a physicist who comes on to the show and he is the most knowledgeable person that I have close contact with when it comes to spaceflight technologies and spaceflight history and the future of space expansion. Um, in terms of aerospace, he's the he's my go-to person. He's the person that all my questions get forwarded to. And he comes on the show whenever I don't have a, a guest lined up and so that we can sort of discuss what's going on in the world of space, in the world of science, in the world of climate change, in the world of astronomy that week. And so this week, he's on. We got big guests coming up. But this is a busy time of the year for academics. Uh, most of the people that I have on the show are academics. They work in colleges, they're professors, they work in national laboratories, and this is a busy time of the year for them because this is grant writing season, school's starting again for most of them, they have to start teaching again. So it's a busy time. Most people are wanting to defer their role in the show until February, until March. And so we have big shows coming down the line, but for now I hope that you enjoy this episode. We talk about climate change. Because the 2018 results are in. Did carbon emissions go down? Did they continue climbing? Did the temperature of the earth continue climbing? Uh, is sea level changing? What are the implications we're beginning to see? Direct implications on commerce. Direct implications on the economies of different regions due to climate change. That data is finally available to us. We analyze some of it. And we let you know what you can expect to see going forward. Did we improve this year? The answer, short answer, no, but you'll find out why, okay? And then we talk about CHIME. CHIME is a new radio telescope in Canada, and it has detected 13 new fast radio bursts. Fast radio bursts are some of the most mysterious objects that we are discovering right now. And the reason they're so mysterious is in part because we have no idea what causes them. So we talk about that. Could it be aliens? What is it? What is a fast radio burst? How do we detect them? How does CHIME detect them? I answer that. Then we talk about the Hubble Space Telescope. It's broken right now. One of the cameras is shut down due to some 
weird stuff going on in the internal components of the Hubble Space Telescope. Why is it shut down? When will it get back up? And does the government shutdown affect that timeline? We talk about that. And then we wrap it up by talking about the wall. $5.7 billion. Donald Trump's wall. Can it be used in any scientific concept? Context, rather. For example, what happens if you put solar panels on it? How many solar panels would you need to put on each segment of the wall in order to produce the largest solar farm in the United States? Turns out that it's not that many. And I discuss that, and I discuss how we can utilize the wall if it's going to be built, which it probably is going to be built, because that's what we do in politics in America. We say, hmm, what's a good idea? And then we come up with a good idea, and then instead of using the good idea, we say, okay, let's think of the opposite idea than the good idea, which is the bad idea, and let's do the bad idea instead. And so that's what we're doing. We take the bad idea, which is the wall, because in reality, it's not going to do anything other than cut down on the sheer number of immigrants, which I guess if you want to cut down on the sheer number of immigrants, then hurrah, you've done it. But in terms of stopping drugs, in terms of stopping violence, eh, not sure that's going to work, you know? But anyway, build it. Don't care. Don't care at all. You know what I don't care less about? Nothing. Build it. Don't give a shit. Anyway, can we put solar panels on it? Yes. Should we? Well, that's up to the funders, you know? Can it pay for itself in electricity? Probably not. But it would nevertheless be able to generate a large amount of solar electricity that would be able to be used along the southern United States. And so I talk about how that can be done, what are the implications of that, and I hope that you enjoy the episode. Check us out on YouTube now, okay? We're on YouTube now. We have the video format. We have the studio behind me. We have the production value increasing, which means now if you watch us on YouTube, if we talk about a video, if we talk about a picture, if we talk about some scientific data, it will now be accessible to you right there in the video format, right there on the screen. You don't have to go look at it. You don't have to click a link. It's there for you to see and for you to watch as we talk about it and to listen to us as we sort of div divulge the information that is shown on screen. Very easy for you. The production value is increasing as the viewership increases. I also want to grow the YouTube channel. It only accounts for like single digit percentages of viewership right now, but I want to change that because I think that there's some potential there in terms of the interactiveness that video brings compared to audio. And so with that being said, people, I hope you enjoyed the show. Consider becoming a patron, patreon.com slash the state of the universe. If you want to submit questions, if you want to join the interactive community, just heard a truck drive by. So happy they drove by because they reminded me of something. My friend Nate's audio is normally quite good, but at this particular time, we recorded the podcast on a Saturday afternoon. You know what that means? I'm pretty sure Nate was sitting at an intersection, so that you hear a lot of traffic noises in the background. Do I hate traffic? Sure do. Do I hope that all of those people that were driving in the background of my podcast get in a wreck? Sure do. Don't want them to die. Don't want them to get hurt. Just want a fender bender to let them know, turn your damn car off when I'm recording. That's all I ask. If I'm recording, shut it down. Oh, Brendan's recording? Okay, let's turn the ignition off now. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Love you all. Thanks for taking a Saturday afternoon to uh, sit down and 
and speak. And talk you know? about the state of the universe. The universe. Everything in it, you know? Coffee. Life, the universe. What can everything. you think of? What's in the universe? Coffee? Chocolate? Bananas. Bananas are, yeah. Uh, raspberries. Bangles. Belts. So, leather. Yeah. Cows. Humans. Um, circumcision. That's, yeah, um, for better or for worse, that's... Yeah. You know, I actually saw... Uh, this is interesting. I saw an article, and this wasn't on the agenda, but I saw this, that there's a growing number of physicians who are against the use of circumcision. Really? Because there's no actual use for it. It just gets rid of a whole bunch of nerve endings. And it kills some children. It kills children? I didn't know. Yeah, that. a very what? small like a like an incredibly small percentage, but it never like like, exists. In like first world countries, like in the US. Like, I don't know. I can I can have a kid and be like, yeah, I'll get him circumcised and then my kid's dead. Yeah, I don't That's know. Too, That's a good question. God. We should put that on the agenda for next week so we actually have time to look yeah. into it. But it it's it's done primarily I think it's like a Christian tradition, right? It's not That's why it's done, because it's has religious basis. Yeah, it's no, it's Jewish. It's Jewish? No yeah. one knows. Well, what's a bar mitzvah? Then, that's when you're like come of age. I don't know. Don't Jewish people do it when you're like a little bit older, though? Yeah, you do. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know much about yeah. Judaism. No one but, knows. But um, I think it was done in the U.S. for like health reasons or something originally. What health? Back reasons? in like back when sex ed was like you know, don't have sex and the devil will kill you sort of thing i think it was like it makes your penis cleaner or something i don't what? know what there was there was some weird reason that they started doing it and it caught on because it's know, not popular in europe it's only really in the u.s that it's really popular all right i gotta admit that i my instinct is to call you dumb because that's my <laughs> instinct always with you but after last week with the maple maple syrup urine disease stuff <laughs> now i'm now i'm like all right i'm just gonna believe everything he says you're gonna become a cult leader. For, I would and, love to be a cult, and leader. I'm gonna be your so only. Much. I'm gonna be your only follower. <laughs> a one man cult. Well, yeah. Have cult you leader. watched that? Uh, have you watched that cult show on Netflix? Uh, uh, what's it called? Country Wild Wild Country. Yes. Oh my Indian god! Lady. How you know, crazy! Yeah. That was, dude. I like. I binged that in like one afternoon. It was. I just couldn't stop watching it. That yeah, so that's cool. insane. If you haven't seen that, people, go watch that. That's a really cool... Uh, Where are they out? Like Montana or Wyoming or Oregon. something? Oregon. Oregon. Oregon, yeah. yeah. It's this cult that somehow I never heard of before. And what's even weirder is that when I ask older people, like I'll ask my mom or something, and she's never heard of it either. And I feel like it would have been all over the news, but like no yeah. old people knew about I, it. I, asked, I had the same thing. I asked my mom and she didn't, she didn't remember it whatsoever. Yeah, that's interesting. But it was nevertheless a really, a really awesome uh, documentary, yeah. docu series that I encourage you to watch. It had a really cool soundtrack. I remember looking up the soundtrack afterwards. Well, you're the only cool person to do that, you know. <laughs> you know. I think the soundtrack's still on like, Google. Did Play you ever well like? Has. Did you ever like do something and then you're like, oh yeah, I'm the only person to do this because I'm the <laughs> only idiot <laughs> on no the planet. No one else cares about yeah. this. <laughs> and do you ever think about that before you speak? Like no one else actually cares about what I'm about to say. 
No, because if I thought like that, I would never say anything. That's it would be true. a sad life. That's so true. I just I just put my stuff out there in the world, and I let the world deal with it afterwards. That's fair. I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone, and I came to a realization. A very simple test for autism. Here we go, okay? <laughs> this is what I realized, okay? I, I knew several um, colleagues or, or people that I worked or studied alongside as I – went through my career that were autistic. Like they told me they were autistic. I wasn't just assuming. They told me they were autistic. And here's something I noticed. This is this I want to, I want you to I want to cross reference my experience with you. Okay. When I ask an ordinary person, like if I say, "Hey Nate, how are you doing today?" What do you say in return? I say I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Exactly. That's like the fundamental response that everyone has, okay? And you're not supposed to say, oh, I'm not doing good today. I don't feel good. I woke up. I'm not feeling well. I'm feeling a little depressed. I drove in today and I wanted to drive my car into the other lane and do another car and kill myself. But I didn't want to hurt the other family. So I thought maybe I should just drive into a tree instead. But I didn't really want to drive into the tree because in case then my gas tank would break open and I would spill the oil on the grass and I didn't want to hurt the ducks. And so here I am. You don't say that. Instead, you're like, oh, I'm good. Autistic people, all of them that I've known don't have that social cue and they will tell you how they're feeling <laughs> I'm thinking of a few specific examples where I, don't, I haven't known a whole lot of like really autistic people you know other than just like a little bit or like you can't really tell yeah but the people that I've known that like it's it's clearly obvious and they've told me like yeah I'm autistic you know yeah <laughs> I've had that experience I'll ask them how they're doing. Right? And they'll just like look at me and I'm just like, terrible, or this sucks, or something. And I'm just sitting there like, okay. Yeah. So what you got to do is you got to take kids when they're like, when they're socially adept, maybe like ninth grade or whatever, and you say, hey, Benjamin, how are you doing today? And if he's like, you know, I hate the goddamn commies, then you know, <laughs> maybe he's autistic. That's all I'm saying. I, I wish everyone had that response, though. I would like to know exactly what's on your mind at that exact moment. That's yeah. true. We should actually get rid of no that. Filter. Yeah, we should. Well, the problem is then life would be too com complex. You couldn't conversate with anyone. Because when you walk into the office, you're like, oh, hey, Jerry, how you doing? How was your weekend? And he just says, oh, it was great. You know? And you say, hey, Barbara, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. But if you had Barbara telling you all the goddamn things she didn't like in the world, Barbara would never shut the <laughs> hell up. It would be a much more interesting conversation, though, and you'd get to know people a lot better. But you wouldn't get anything done because Barbara has so many <laughs> issues, you know? Think of one Barbara you know in the world. Think. My aunt's name is Barbara. And is she annoying? No, I love my aunt. Pretend she's, she's, awesome. pretend she's not listening, though. <laughs> I still love my she's aunt. She's not listening, not though. Like, she's, not, she's not annoying. See, this is how I know you're not and autistic. I think and I think that's – no, she's not. I, I think that's the only Barb I know, too. I mean – do you know multiple? Well, hold on. Barbers? Does she go by Barb or Barbara? She goes by Barb. Okay, that doesn't count then. But I'm her name is Barbara. It doesn't count. It's all about what you what you identify my, as. You my know? grandparents were crafty. They named their their daughters Linda, Deborah, Barbara, and Tina. So they all end with an A. Oh yeah, that's just called being not creative. And then Good my job. mom named me and my sister Nathan and Caitlin because she wanted to continue. The weird rhyming thing. Of My mom named me. I just realized the other day how creepy this was. I didn't realize it was creepy until the other day. Uh, my mom named me Brendan, which is her name with an N tacked on the end. <laughs> exact yeah. same spelling and everything. And until the other day, I hadn't realized that that was weird. When you have a child 
if it's either way, they should have the same name. You just tack a silent E on the end. So if, it, if it's a male, you name them Brendan with an E. But if it's a girl, then you name them Brendan with an E, but you pronounce it Brendana or something like that. Yeah, I could do that. Just carry on the tradition. Be, yeah, and then they can name their kids Brendan and... Yeah, and then she named my brother. She named my brother Matthew, but with only one T. You know, get with it. You know what I mean? Okay. Just get with it. You I've know? never, I've never heard of Matthew with one T. Just get so with it. Sure. You know, that's all I'm saying. Like you're not with it right now. I just need you to get with it. Is all I'm saying. I'm here. Okay. I'm with it. Maybe we should talk about some science now. Yeah, let's talk about something real. <laughs> okay. In 2018, the data is here. The data is in. 2018 was. By all accounts, the highest CO2 emission year on record, according to the Global Carbon Project. CO2 emissions from burning fossil fuels are about a 2.7% increase from 2017, which 2017 was a 1.6% increase from 2016. And 2016 and 2015 and 2014 were relatively flat, and we were actually being kind of optimistic. So, so about we were that. we were doing well for a few years. And then yes, and there's a reason. Sort of... There's a reason we were doing well, and it had to do with the fact that China had really slowed down their burning of coal. And it wasn't until the last two years, and in particular 2018, where India and China really had an uptick, like a large like 5 to 7% increase in the amount of coal they used. And so that's not directly the reason. It's I shouldn't say directly. It is directly a reason for an uptick, but it is not the only reason for the uptick, but it is nevertheless uh, something that is certainly plausible to account for the changes we're seeing. And what's even worse is that they probably aren't going to slow down. So in 2018... I, I want to give everyone a scale. The estimated total carbon dioxide concentrations emitted were 37.1 billion metric tons. Okay, now, the question is, how do you conceptualize 37.1 billion metric tons? Because if you have no idea what a single metric ton of CO2 looks like, then I can't imagine you know what 37 billion <laughs> It sounds like a big number, right? But what does it mean? Well... I did some calculations, okay? To give a scale of 37.1 billion metric tons, the Great Salt Lake in Salt Lake City has half as many metric tons of water than that. They have about 18 billion metric tons of water in the Great Salt Lake, which is the biggest lake in the United States that isn't a Great Lake, okay? So if you took two Great Salt Lakes and you took the volume of water inside of those two Great Salt Lakes, that would be about equivalent to the amount of CO2 we pumped into the atmosphere last year. That's a lot of CO2. Yeah, it just kind of makes you sit back and be like, oh, that's that, probably... That really makes me think, because there's a lot of talk about carbon capture technologies, and I know you had someone on the podcast who talked about that. And it seems like a really promising technology and a really great thing, but when you put it in terms of in one year, we put up two salt lakes worth of CO2 that we'd have to pull out. And that's just one year. Yeah. And it's a monumental challenge. Yeah, even when I had him, and that's episode 20 with Dr. Stephen Pakala, the episode you're mentioning. Even when we talked, like, you can't 
rely on carbon capture. You have to partake in carbon mitigation. It's a must. It has to be done in unison because even carbon capture technologies probably aren't going to be pulling out 37.1 billion metric tons, you know. And they're certainly not going to be doing it on a time scale that's going to prevent further damage from happening. But it's also uh, makes 2018 the one of the four warmest years on record, continuing the streak. 2015, 2016, 2017, and now 2018 are the four warmest years on record. Since 1850, when we started recording. Yeah. Of course, we know that there were large-scale catastrophic changes in the atmosphere in the past that have likely made the global temperature exceed the numbers we're seeing today. I don't think anyone's debating that. What's being debated instead is the effect that industrialization has had on those numbers. And I think that's clear. I think that's clear. If you look at the data, you would really have to be a disbeliever. You would have to be shading your mind with disbelief in order to misrepresent the data in a way that makes you say, oh, this could be due to something that isn't human beings. You know, there's real, there's yeah. no real way around. Oh, if you look, I mean, you look back at the timeline, it starts shooting up right around 1850, right at the Industrial Revolution. Yep. Hey, real and quick. as time goes on, it continues to get more steep. Yeah, what's up? I want you to finish your idea, but first I want to say, whoever the dude was that was driving the motorcycle outside of your house, hope he wrecks, <laughs> you know? Hope he wrecks. You know? Don't want him to I mean, die. Yeah. Now listen, I'm not saying I want him to die. I'm just saying. I just want him to wreck. I hope he wrecks. You That's should hear all. them at, at night when there's no one driving, and then people try to like drag rings right up here on Main. It's a big road, and there's a while before it makes light, and they just gun it. It's so loud, and some nights like it freaks me out. It really does. Like I'll just be walking around in the quiet, like doing my thing, and then I'm just like yeah. trying to like drop whatever I'm holding. Yeah, I have a, an I, my apartment building is right next to the interstate that leads into the city of Rochester. And I hear people – it's like a Sunday night thing. Sunday night is the night that all these cars, they get together and they decide, you know how we could be really cool today? We could make a lot of noise and wake a bunch of people up and essentially just be a giant cloud of assholes. So let's go do it. And they go and they drive and they do it and they're real loud and I hate them, you know? And yeah. I don't want a pileup to happen, but I wouldn't mind if it did. That's all I'm saying, <laughs> you know? I don't like wish a pileup would happen, but if it did happen, eh, don't care. You know? Well, at least if warming continues the way it's going, the oceans will rise, and Houston will be underwater, and then nobody can gun their engine late at night and wake me up. Yeah. Unless they have, like, a speedboat or something. Oh, they will have a boat, too. <laughs> you know it. Just picture it. Giant boat, right? They put big tires on it that aren't even fake. They get a lift kit so that they are actually <laughs> sitting higher than the boat rides on top of the water. They're, like, up higher. They got a Trump flag and a Confederate flag hanging off the back, and they're just zipping around, you know? Because you know that's going to happen. It'll definitely happen. So uh, getting getting back on topic, though. <laughs> so I um, I took one class. I went to one lecture of this class called Energy and the Environment, and then I dropped it because I was way out of my league. But he mentioned some things. He actually talked about this article. Was and, this um, this year that you did this, or in the past? Yeah, this was this was on Monday or, or Tuesday. Look Tuesday at you, was. you drop out. All right, continue. Yeah, 
So he had a few slides. So this one was really interesting. It's um, 2100 warming projections. So the warming projections in what, 80, 81 years. So where we are now, if it continued completely unmitigated, um, let's see, where are we at? We're at like one, one and a half degrees above Celsius, yep. above mm -hmm. where we started. Yep. So if this continued unmitigated, we'd be up to between 4.1 and 4.8 degrees yeah. above baseline Celsius. I was going to actually mention that to you because I, I saw some projections too, and most of the projections I saw, if we stay unmitigated or – actually, I think what these projections did is they took into account the expected rise of CO2 that we will receive in 2019 – and then they they extrapolated that data forward, whereas the numbers you're getting are probably 2018 extrapolated forward. Mm -hmm. um, the numbers that I was seeing are between five and nine degrees Celsius. Yeah, Jeez. which which is is catastrophic. It's actually you know if you think about the yeah. effects that 1.1 degrees have had, five to nine degrees is like all right, let's go to Mars. Yeah, you know. Well, and then it's interesting because then it has current policies listed. And so even if we keep policy the same it is right now for the next 80 years, we're still looking at 3.1 to 3.5 degrees Celsius above baseline. And yeah. then it has optimistic policies, which is still 3.0 degrees Celsius. Which, And then it has our pledges and targets listed, which is 2.7 to 3. So even if, if we keep the current policies, we're going to miss our pledges and our targets for the Paris Agreement and everything. And even if we enact some really optimistic policies right now we're still on track to miss it yeah and you know t rising temperatures aren't the only thing that's going to happen most people are probably some not most people i think uh you know the podcast is in essence an echo chamber in the sense that most of the people watching are scientifically literate already and so but there's probably some people who aren't and so i'll say this rising temperatures aren't the only thing that will happen right you will have uh effects that come along with rising temperatures like sea level rise right new orleans new orleans is a bowl essentially in the in the gulf of mexico it's a giant bowl that's why it floods so easily and uh it will fill up probably by the time we reach that that mark i hope to god that it's not so cold here i'll take a nine degree celsius rise you know what give it to me <laughs> i don't want it down here you know oh what god. give it to me you know <laughs> Because I was pumping gas yesterday, and I literally saw a little kid freeze to death. <laughs> I saw him freeze to death across the way. Yeah, he was standing outside, and he was frozen. to. And the mom just picked him up and put him in the car, and I guess she's just going to thaw him out. <laughs> I don't quite understand, but... You live in the rough. It's 70 or 65 degrees right now. So, uh... Yeah, it nobody's was... Nobody's freezing oh to death here. I was, trying to realize, I was trying to think yesterday, why did I decide to move to a climate like this? <laughs> I don't get it. That's why I moved south. Why do humans after, after graduation? I was like, I'm not going to be cold anymore. I refuse, dude. It's so funny because in the in the fall, right? We got the first big snowfall of the year. It was like a eight inches, ten inches, whatever. And I took a picture of myself digging myself out of my car, and I posted it on Instagram. And I was like, I couldn't imagine living in a climate without four seasons. Yeah, you could, dumb shit. You could because <laughs> four seasons sucks. <laughs> It does. People say that all the time. I go home and they're like, oh, that must be nice, but I really like to see the leaves change and have all four seasons, you know. And I'm like, you have six months of misery and regret. 
Yeah. And then summer comes and you just immediately forget it, you know, like it's some traumatic experience that never really happened to you. And then you're in denial that it's going to happen again in a few months. Meanwhile, yeah. down here, it's like, oh, it's December. It's only going to be 70 degrees out today. What a shame. See, I like the leaves changing. I like the – here's what I really like. I like the brisk feeling of like a September evening, you know, like where you have to wear a hoodie but you're not cold. That's a good That's a good temperature. I like that. But I also like not having to fear that I will actually die when I walk into work. <laughs> so – but anyway, back to all the changes that you will see. Uh, this is one that surprised me. I was in Maine over the summer. And one thing that about Maine, the only thing about Maine that matters is lobsters. Lobsters are such a good tasting animal. Maybe the best. I will eat so Did many you know lobsters. They used, to, they used to give lobsters to prisoners because it was like a cheap, dirty food yeah. that no one wanted to eat. Yeah. I See, here's, here's, here's what I did when I went to Maine. I did tons of things, tons of hiking. But one of the things I did is I went on a lobster fish or a lobster fishing um, like sort of – Tag along tutorial. Here's how we catch lobsters. Here's what we look for when we catch them. Here's the ones we throw back. You know, and you went on a boat and they're pulling up the things. And So it's a very competitive market. And they only give out so many like lobster tags. Only a certain number of people are able to catch lobsters. And it turns out that it's like the same families catching lobsters for 150 years. Because you just pass these tags down your your, your genealogy. And it's a, it's a $500 million market. So it's in, it's an insane market to catch lobsters. But I went on this tour, and one of the things they were saying is that the number of lobsters they're catching is drastically down. And you know what? Whoever's driving outside of your apartment and is interrupting me while I talk about lobsters, I hate. I hope they crash into the motorcycle, dude. I just hope there's a 40-car pileup outside. But anyway, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, I hope. So ignore the traffic and get back to your point. Lobsters. Um, so I was up there and I was on this expedition, this fishing thing. We went out and we saw a bunch of seals and whales and cool stuff, but we were catching these lobsters too. And they're pulling up the lobsters and they had a scientist on board who works at a local university and was talking about why fishermen are catching less lobsters. Now, I should paraphrase this with in 2014, 2015, the New England lobster market, like the New England area, not Maine, but the New England, Massachusetts type area, Rhode Island, completely dried up. They couldn't catch like any lobsters. In fact, most fishermen just switched. They're like, all right, we'll catch clams, you know, because you just can't catch lobsters. And it wasn't clear at the time why that had happened. Well, at the same time, the lobster fisheries in Maine started to really boom to make more money than they ever have. They were catching so many lobsters. Well, now, in this year, the lobster market in Maine died down. It lost about $100 million compared to last year because they had caught so many fewer lobsters. And the reason why, at least the hypothesized reason why, is that the lobsters are moving north to colder waters. They used to occupy the regions around Massachusetts. They used to occupy the regions more south. You could catch them. But as the waters get warmer, they move north. And now what you're seeing is that even the waters in Maine are getting so warm 
that the lobsters are moving further north into Canada. And so what you'll see eventually over time is the lobster fisheries in the United States essentially just dying. And so that's one thing that I experienced this year as I was chowing down on lobster rolls. Oh my God, lobster rolls. Do you know what they are? No. No? Well, I don't think I've ever had a lobster roll. (gasps) We're going to go to Maine in the summer, you and me. We're going to eat lobster rolls. Okay, here's what they are. Picture a hot dog bun. Toasted. Perfect toast. Not so much that it crunches when you bite it, but enough so that it could have a warm, buttery flavor, you know? And then you fill it up with lobster claw meat, fresh, just caught off the dock down there. You fill it up with this meat, and you pour some butter over it, and you just eat it just like that. That's all it is. Bun with lobster in it and butter. (laughs) And it is so incredibly good, you know? One of the best things you'll ever eat, and also whole lobsters. Do you ever eat a whole lobster? I've never eaten a whole lobster. I've had very few lobster experiences in my life. Well, I'll say this. If you're not going to eat fresh lobster from Maine, then lobster, I'm not really convinced, is great. You know, I've eaten a lot of lobsters that weren't from Maine. Like, is fa- do, do, fact- do lobsters get factory farmed? Like, what are the ones at Red Lobster in the tank? <laughs> I don't know. Those are definitely factory farm. Not that good, you know. But lobsters in Maine, oh, they'll blow your socks off. They will. Well, that's my story about lobsters. And lobsters are just one of the changes that you will see as as the oceans warm, as the ice melts, as the climate gets warmer, as the CO2 emissions uptick. And 2018... So wasn't um, the Syrian refugee crisis uh, due in part to climate change? I don't know. I was, you know, I saw people mentioning things um, that caused famine or something, and then that caused political destabilization. So it sort of has these ripple effects where it might just be lobster fisheries dying or, or food shortages or something, but these are going to affect economies and affect societies in, in unforeseen ways. Yeah, I'm not a social scientist, so... Some of these conclusions that people draw, I always have a little bit of skepticism. And it's not skepticism that I think that they're – it's not a skepticism that I think they're not doing the right thing. I'll say this actually. My skepticism for the social sciences has really began to grow as I've gone through college and I've seen this like uptick in gender studies, which is such a joke of an education – it just frankly is because the science, social science that they do is truthfully not um, scientific in any way. So I'll say that. And so that has caused me to lose a lot of faith. In, and if you want to read about a great book about this, read um, The Coddling of the American Mind. It's a book that, that sort of traces the origins of this like real anti-science sort of this anti-science stigma that surrounds certain social sciences from its origin, which seems to take place around 2014. It really, which is Nate, when you and I sort of really started our, our journeys through undergraduate. Yeah. And I, now it's hard for me to say what has changed over my time because it always was seemed to be there. But I'll say this. It got really bad towards the end of my career in undergraduate. Like this sort of anti-science 
assume that everyone is being held down sort of mindset. And, and you know, you know what, and this, this might be tangential, but I was just looking at this book on Amazon and, and reading some of the, uh, the reviews and quotes. And it says, you know, about, about how do you create wiser kids, get them off their screens, argue with them, get them out of their narrow worlds. I think that is something that I've seen a lot of people just sort of, of living in this tiny sliver of humanity and life, you know, where they, they have blinders on to everything else. Yeah. It seems like, so a great example is, would be like Dr. Fisher and uh, Dr. Erickson. And maybe it's because I just watched uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail last night. For the and for, for, time. for these people that don't know, I'll, I'll say real quick. When he yeah. says he means Dr. David Fisher, Dr. Richard, er- Richard Erickson, who were two of his undergraduate professors. We've talked yeah, about him on the show like, before. So yeah. yeah. But anyway, continue. It's just, I've noticed this, especially with, with pop culture things, a lot with kids our age, is that so many people are not aware of like of just big things that I think everyone should know, just like should be in the collective unconscious, you know? Which is like some Monty Python, you know, uh, quotes, you know, like the nights you say neat. Like if I say that, you should know what that is, you know? You shouldn't you shouldn't I don't know. Do you agree with me? Um, I feel like there's certain things that I feel like people should just have a, an understanding of. Like, if you say soup Nazi, you should know that that's talking about Seinfeld. Like, you should have these connections in your head. See, and I know that you didn't know you didn't know Festivus for the rest of us, which is a Seinfeld thing, which is this huge cultural thing that people just, like, understand. Yeah, see, I don't know, like, any of those. When it comes to culture, I think, I think it has so much to do with how you grow up. Well, I notice it a lot in movies where a lot of movies and TV shows and, and things like that will have these small little references where they'll reference something something like that, you know, or like another one that's really easy, like Hitchhiker's Guide, like 42, or like I said earlier in the beginning of the podcast, you were talking about the universe, I said life, the universe, and everything. It's a famous line from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And so I think when people like shut themselves off and don't, I don't know, they don't, they don't listen to these, they don't watch these TV shows or these movies or... Or just try to get an understanding of them mm-hmm. that so many people do, and it's so ingrained in the, the public unconsciousness or consciousness or whatever that they miss this whole level. You know, like if you're watching a Hollywood movie, you're gonna miss three or four jokes because you don't know these things. Yeah, that's true, and you're gonna miss all these references and all these connections because you've just sort of cut yourself off and you're just scrolling mindlessly on Facebook or liking Instagram pictures. You know? I think. And, and getting into this, this I I completely agree with what you're saying, but not as it applies to pop culture per se. I think that what you're saying is a very important thing as it applies to world history. Yeah. Understanding basic historical information, which yeah. is something that I would say. So, the- and, I, and I think I mean I think it's the same the same argument either way. You know I mean I just notice it specifically with pop culture stuff a lot. But world history is the same where people don't understand. You know what actually happened. Yes. And how things actually happened. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of putting your blinders on and going through life. And one of the things that that the reason I I pick on gender studies in particular is because I think that one thing they do is incredibly anti-science, and the thing that they do is they draw the conclusion before looking at the data, and then they look at the data as a way to confirm the conclusion. This is a pr- let, 
let me give you an example as it applies to the gender wage gap, okay? The gender wage gap shows that women get paid less than men overall, on average. You know, women might get paid, I don't know, 10% less or whatever the figure is. It doesn't matter, okay? But what isn't analyzed is why. Why is that number that way? Well, there's several reasons the number is that way. One of the reasons, and it's a small reason, it's not, is by no means the reason, is that discrimination happens. That is one reason, but it is not the reason. And if it were the only reason, you certainly would not see the type of, of um, difference that you actually do see when you analyze the data. The actual reason has more to do with the fact that men tend to, tend to take on more dangerous jobs. That's one reason. Another reason is that what you see with a lot of women in certain fields is that they tend to leave fields that require intense amounts of work at younger ages. I'll give you an example. Accounting is and being like a, a certified public accountant or working in business is one example of a field where women tend to leave around age 30. And the reason they tend to leave around age 30 is because they feel that they want a family. Okay? And they their time is running out, if you will, because women have a timeline at which they can have a family. They have to get pregnant by like 35, 40. The time is running out. Dudes don't have that timeline per se. You know, you could be yeah. shooting loads into your 60s and you're perfectly fine. So they... And, and another issue is that a lot of companies won't give you a lot of maternity leave. Yes. You know, they'll, they'll give you a few weeks or so. And if you want to take more time and actually be there to raise your children through those formative years... You have to quit, and there's no guarantee that you'll get your job back. Yes. So the question once your child's old enough to go to school, exactly. But but a lot of these gender studies departments won't actually analyze the full issue because their perception, their conclusion that they draw before they even look at the data is that there's a patriarchy and there's men that are holding women back. But the truth is that women also make decisions that hold back their own career. And that's a good thing because I think more people should do that. They should think about themselves, you know? Like a lot of people point out, oh, well, there's, you know, only, you know, two of the top 100 companies have women as CEOs or some something like that. Okay? That's, a, why would you want to be a CEO? That's the first question that comes to my mind. Why would you want to be Elon Musk? Why? Like, do you want to be Elon Musk? That man has... Imagine his personal life, okay? We see the glitz and the glam and the billion dollars, but imagine the fact that he never sees his kids. He's probably a horrible father because he just doesn't have the time to invest in the life of his children. I mean, when Tesla was trying to ramp up their production, he said that he spent nights sleeping under his desk. Yeah. You know? Like, I don't want to live that life. Exactly. And I think that because... I... Because women think about their families, because they have this sort of time scale by which they have to have a family, they tend to steer away from those jobs. It's not that they can't get them. They can get them. They would have to work just as hard as any man would have to work. Elon Musk didn't get handed his job because he's a man. He got handed his job because he was willing to work 90 hours a week and not focus on anything else. 
except for the one singular focus, the singular focus to be the most successful tech entrepreneur in the history of the world. And he had the singular focus and he gave up his family and he gave up his wife and he gave up his entire life to get that one thing. And he finally got it. And guess what? He sacrificed everything along the way. The man has nothing to speak for except for that one goal that he achieved. He put 150% of his effort into one thing. And in doing so, he gave up everything else. And that's true for Jeff Bezos. That's true for Bill Gates. It's true for all of them. Okay. If you look at these people, if you analyze these people, if you read the biographies, if you read the autobiographies, you learn something. And the thing that you learn is that they sacrifice everything to get where they are. And I think women are less inclined to do that than men because of the maternal need to have children, to have a family. And I think that that exists in men too. I certainly want to have a family. I don't want to live in an environment or, or put myself in an environment where I give up every single thing I have just so I can have a fruitful career. That's not me. I want to have a fruitful family as well. I, wanted, I want this to be fruitful. I want to have, you know, I want to do outreach. I want to, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be the best scientific researcher to ever live if it means I don't do anything else. But, speaking of science, now that I'm done flipping out, <laughs> Uh, but uh, that's just like one of the one of the things that that boggles the mind when it comes to certain fields that that analyze things they draw conclusions then they find the data to fit the conclusion and i think in particular sociology and gender studies do that in today's age more and i'm not saying every department does i'm not shitting on the entire field but the departments at the colleges that i have been to do that they absolutely do that. They draw the conclusion that men hold women back, and then they find the data to fit the conclusion that men hold women back. But I would say, now of course, I'm not even allowed to say this, right? Because I'm a privileged white male, right? Um, even though statistically growing up in single mother households are the biggest indicator of success in college, um, and I did grow up in a single mother household, I guess I had more of an advantage because I'm white than if I was, say, a white woman. I don't know. Some bullshit, right? Some nonsense. Um, but yeah, that that's... And read the coddling of the American mind now that I spent 20 minutes talking about that. Uh, it's, it's absolutely... I don't even remember what got me started on this. Do you? I honestly don't remember either. We were talking about lobsters and then this happened. <laughs> I don't know. Let's let's go to something next on the list. Yeah, I don't remember. What else do I so, talk about? Uh, the Hubble telescope is the next thing on the list. Oh yeah, the camera broke. The, yeah, the wide field. Yes, and this uh, I didn't know this. This was installed three. Uh, this I almost said three years ago. That's 2000, right. Yeah, I think. Ten years ago, essentially. It would have been the last servicing mission, of which the was in two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Yeah. yeah. So Featured almost, Mike Massimino. Yep, almost 10 years ago. I read his, his biography. It's a good book, by the way, if anyone wants to read it. It's called Spaceman. Yeah. Now, I see a bunch of headlines saying the camera broke. I don't. That's not exactly what happened, right? I think something happened and it shut itself down. Yes. They shut it down. There was some... It suspended sus operations as a safety precaution. So there was it didn't some break, per se. Something happened that wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah. They shut it down to be careful. Some suspicious activities were going on in the voltages going to the camera. And they decided it was best if they powered it down, figured out what the problem was before they turned it back on. Now, the government shutdown, I'm getting mixed 
feelings on this, okay? I see many news articles saying the government shutdown is going to delay the repair or cause NASA to not be able to operate on this problem at full efficiency. And I see some quotes from people who are affiliated with NASA who seem to agree with that. But on the NASA website, it says, point blank, I'll read the actual quote because I have it up here. It says, uh, right at the bottom of their article discussing this, that um, the current partial government shutdown is not expected to have an impact on the recovery of the instrument to normal operations. So, Oh, that's because, well, you didn't read the sentence before that. Hubble operations, like other satellite operations, are accepted activities as defined in the NASA furlough shutdown plan. So these teams and these employees are still working. Okay, so the... They might not be getting paid right now, but they're still coming in and working. I see. They're, they're deemed essential personnel. Okay, so had they not had this sort of foresight to put this in the shutdown plan that they drew up, probably whenever they drew it up, then, then this could have been a problem. But as it stands right now, the employees are working to try to get this fixed, and uh, it shouldn't be delayed by the fact that yeah, there's a these, shutdown. These, these teams are there every day, day in and day out. I would assume they're not getting paid, um, and they're waiting on back pay. But they're there working on this. That's got to suck, man. The more I think yeah. about the government shutdown, the more mad I get. Yeah. Like, I don't care, I who's, would... I don't care whose fault it is, but can we, like, do something about it? Yeah, like, at this point, I mean, let's... You know, me and, my, me and my wife are not, by no means are we living in poverty right now. By no means are we in, like, the bottom income bracket. We're doing pretty well for this point in our career that we're at. But we're still kind of at a point where some bills are paycheck to paycheck because we have loans, we have rent, we have car payments, we have insurance payments, we have you know uh, uh, groceries, whatever. And a lot of people in America are like that. They're living paycheck to paycheck. You know, they can't afford. Like if I missed a pay period, that would probably put me in a bad spot. I feel. Yeah, and I think I mean for me personally, I mean I want to work for NASA. You know, I want to work for the federal government. This is not, you know, fanning those flames. This is this is dimming that fire, right? Because this it's is certainly not not encouraging. That. It's now the it's now the most um, the longest shutdown in in history. I think today yeah. today marks the day. Yeah, That's and the this longest. is I mean, uh, this is the problem with government jobs. First off, is they don't get the brightest people because they don't pay as much as the private industry would. Typically, there's a lot of bureaucracy and there's a lot of signatures that have to go on something. It takes a long while to get things done. So the best people typically don't go into government anyway. And you and tend this is just what go I ahead. was going to say. And you tend to work longer hours when you, in, in particular, I'll say in science, you tend to work longer hours when you're working on government fellowships, when you're working on government-funded projects, because there is an overbearing pressure to get achievements. As opposed to if you work in private industry, uh, maybe if you work in certain tech fields, then you're working the 80 hours a week or whatever. But in some private industry, but you're getting you're getting paid a lot of money. For yeah, you're getting paid much more than you would in, in government. Yeah, I mean, so so the government already faces this brain drain problem, and this is only going to intensify it. I mean, this is going to turn a lot of people away from that. And I know, and then I talk to people, and they're like, "Well, you know, we need smaller government. We don't need all these people working in government." Well, okay, that may be true. Maybe you want a smaller government, but you still want some sort of government, and you want it to be effective. And the way you have an effective small government is you have the most qualified, hardworking people there that can do the job of three or four other people. 
And this is actively telling those people that, you know, don't work here. Why are you working here? You can get further and do better doing something else. So this is making you have this big, bloated, inefficient government. You know, it's, it seems like either way you fall on the argument, you know, on the line, that this is, this is bad for the government and you should end this and, and take better care of these employees. Yeah, I don't care if it's a Democratic issue. I don't care if it's a Republican issue. It just sucks, you know? It's like these people... It just sheds light on the on the the absolute ignorance that these people in these positions must have to not realize how how in in how struggle in so, God I, can I use words please they don't realize the struggle that a lot of these employees are going through and how missing a paycheck is an actual a, a real big deal I mean we live in the age of credit cards and you could probably get by by you know, putting stuff on credit cards or whatever. Um, I'm, I, I sure could. I think if I stopped getting paid tomorrow, I could probably live 12 months on credit cards. <laughs> um, because that's just the sort of, you know, the way I've set myself up. But, and I think most people are like that, but th- you don't want to do that. You don't want to put $12,000 in rent on a credit card because you're not getting paid at the job that you're still doing. Uh, it's just shitty. It's a shitty. Speaking of government though, Nate. Mm-hmm. billion to the wall, huh? (laughs) I was, so I had this idea that I brought up to you. I was like, hmm, what could we think of that we could spend $5.7 billion on other than the wall? And here's the truth that I found. Not a whole lot. $5.7 billion doesn't go a long way in terms of large-scale projects. But I had one, I, I had one idea though. I thought this was an interesting idea. I looked up the biggest solar farm in the United States. It is called Solar Star. Okay, it's in California, Southern California, and it has an effective area of 13 square kilometers. Okay, so then I was curious. I was like, okay, if we're going to build the wall, what if we put solar panels on it? Okay, now the stretch of, of the border is 3,100 kilometers. What if we populated that with solar panels? Well, I did some calculations on the effective uh, effective area. And if you attached four solar panels to the top of each segment of the wall, so 31 kilometers straight, four solar panels on each each, area, if you will. So you do one solar panel on the south side, or two solar panels on the south side, two on the north side. And I don't mean like against the wall, not like, you know, vertical, but I mean sticking out horizontally. Because if you have them vertical, then one of your two of your solar panels aren't even going to be getting any sun. So horizontally stretched across like this, so the wall sort of forms like a giant T, a letter T. Uh, then if you just did four solar panels on each segment, you would be able to match the U.S.'s biggest solar farm. If you did six, so three on each side, you would be able to extend the collect collecting area much larger than the U.S.'s biggest solar farm. So. It, what do you think about that? What do you think about that idea? If we're going to build um, the wall... I think the problem that you didn't look at is energy transmission. The wall is in a very sparse, barren place. I mean, there's not a lot of people there. But what are the big cities that lie on the border? We've got El Paso in Texas. San Diego. Sort of big. San Diego. Tijuana. Phoenix is kind of close, I guess. There's not a lot of big cities there. And most of that is in the absolute middle of nowhere. So yeah, you could you could generate a lot of electricity. 
Well, you have to get that electricity places, and that's going to be that's going to be the tough part. That's true, and you could also oh, you want Mexico to pay for the wall, do you? Sell it to the Mexicans. Boom. Sell them the electricity. Sell the electricity to the Mexicans. There it is. They paid for the wall, you know. <laughs> but it's the five point seven billion dollars is about twenty five percent of NASA's annual budget. Mm-hmm. I. In terms of like what else it could do feasibly, I don't know what else $5.7 billion could feasibly do for this country. It couldn't do a whole lot. It could pay – all right, here's one thing it could do. This is astonishing to me. You could give every person living below the poverty line with one month of internet for free. Only a month. It would cost $5.7 billion. Jesus, a whole year would cost 60-some billion. Unbelievable. <laughs> We have too many people living. Well, we, we don't have that many people compared to some other countries. Oh, I know. It's unbelievable. Well, truck guys. And back. I think, and the other, yeah, the other issue too is that the walls are most likely going to cost a lot more than five point seven billion that they're asking for. Yeah, because that's just constructing costs. That's not operating cost. You know. Yeah. Operating costs will extend the the cost. And it's Much not harder. often that government projects come in under or even at budget. So that's true, especially ones that have never been done before on the scale. That's true. I, was, I would say that's a highly optimistic number. Yeah, I um, I looked up something because I wanted to see what kind of dent five point seven billion dollars could put in the national student loan debt. I was curious. Oh, not even. This sure. this amazed me. Okay, how much student loan debt do you think America has collectively? Collectively? Yeah. God, I have no idea. How many students have loan debt? How many How many people have loan debt? Forty four million Americans. <laughs> That's like one sixth of the country. That's insane. Four million Americans. It's got to be at least ten billion. You think ten billion? Okay. Is that on the low end? That is so incredibly low. Oh my god. A hundred billion? So incredibly low. No! Five hundred? Higher. A trillion? Higher. No. Yeah. One point five trillion. One point five trillion. Holy shit. One four million people have I have $1.5 trillion in debt. It's one in four, so 25% of adult American adults are paying off student loans. Holy shit. Dude, I don't understand how you think that, how anyone could think that that would be a sustainable way to do anything. <laughs> That's not, oh my God, I didn't know it was $5.7 billion would pay off less than one half of 1% of student loans. <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny that you literally just have to laugh. I love it. That's what I like to tell people when they ask me about student loan debt. And they go like, aren't you worried about it? And I always tell them the same thing. I go, pretty much everyone I know is in the same amount of debt. You know, like, we all have the same problem. At at some point, if everyone owes the government $100,000, it's like no one owes the government anything, right? Yeah. If we're all set back that far. The craziest thing is that. You cannot claim bankruptcy and get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to stick with you. 
That's oh, so man. insane. It's it's only going to be, I think, another few years before we start to realize, like, oh, wait a minute. We shouldn't be putting 21-year-olds in $100,000 in debt. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, but, you know, it's it's our fault because back in the day, you could just work a part-time summer job and they paid for their school that way. So we're just doing something wrong. We're just spending an extreme amount of money for no reason. Well, that's – yeah. Well, actually, honestly, I think it's been manufactured this way in a very intelligent, intelligently crafted series of events. The first is that the education system started to realize something. It started to realize that degrees get jobs. Okay? This is true if you look at the 70s, the 80s. If you have a degree, your odds of getting a job over someone who didn't have a degree is incredibly high. Okay? Then the education system started to realize something. Oh, wait a minute. There's not just a value to education, to making people smarter. There's a value to the piece of paper that we're allowed to give out that claims that you're smarter than someone else. Then education prices started to go up because colleges started to realize there's a value here. There's a value here in giving people pieces of paper. Okay, well, now that then there started to become a problem. The problem was that they got so good at marketing that tons of people started going to school, to college. Tons of people started going to college. Well, then you start to realize something. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, we can make a ton of money off of these people if we jack the price up. Because the piece of paper is still going to mean something, but we're just going to make them pay a lot more. So then over time, you had the prices steadily increasing. So now people are paying more and more and more and more. But in the eyes of the student, it's a necessary cost. You have to pay it. If you want to succeed, you need the degree. And then, <laughs> Could you imagine walking into the uh, the cashier's office or the financial office of the college and going, oh, I don't agree with this $3,000 increase from last year. I'm not going to pay that. Well, yeah, they would just say, <laughs> You okay. can't argue that. That's yeah. not going to happen. Well, they would just, just say, You just have to suck it up and deal with it. Well, you know, they would just say, That's okay, Nate. We have 3,000 kids who have no right to be in this college, but we're going to accept them anyway. Because they will pay the price. So yeah. see you later. You might have been a valedictorian, but that's okay, buddy. Because guess what? There's tons of C students who will pay $60,000 a year. And really, we only care about money. We don't really care about educating you. That's what they would say to you, directly to your face. <laughs> you know? Because the, I think that over time you will see the education system in America begin to mean much less. I think it, we're already getting there. And I think that ties into some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, where social sciences are becoming, you know, sort of like appealing sciences. They're not meant to actually explore anything. They're meant to appeal to ideas. And eventually you will see colleges start to shift that way overall, where you're just trying to appeal to people, you know, and you already see that, right? You know how hard it is to get kicked out of a university, honestly? It's pretty difficult. Like, you have to really be a shitbag to get kicked out of a university. <laughs> yeah. Because, and a repeat offender shitbag. Like, you have to fail for four years straight. You have to get to where you should be a senior, and you're still a freshman for them to kick you out. They're like, Oh, they won't kick you out for that. They'll still take your money. The only thing they'll kick you out for is, like, violent or drug offenses or something like that. They don't care if you fail for six years as long as you're paying the money. That's true. It's absolutely true. And 
I don't think that it's going to get better until we start convincing people that they don't need to go to college. There's too many damn people in college that shouldn't be there. And I'm not saying they yep. shouldn't be there because they're dumb. That's not what I'm saying. They're perfectly smart, but they shouldn't be there because they don't want to be there. And they don't need to be there. They would have done just as fine getting a technical career. Yeah. And getting started right out of high school. I saw a stat recently that like only 20% of jobs require degrees, something like that, you know? And a lot of those jobs, a lot of the 80% are probably jobs that McDonald's or jobs you don't really want to make a career out of. But there's a lot of those jobs where people could be doing something they absolutely like to do without a degree, making money, whether it be welding, whether it be being a mechanic, whether it be, you know, whatever it is, working at some fitness center, you know, um, whatever. And the internet opens up infinite possibilities in that regard. You could take whatever you like, you could put it on the internet and you can make money off of it. And you don't need to go to college for that. If you're, if you're thinking you want to do a trade job, you don't need to go to college. Yes, but the problem is there's so much marketing that these universities put into convincing the young mind that you need the college degree that students still flood in the doors. And there's a stigma, you know. I mean, and I'm sure I've probably told you this before, but my high school would put the little pennants up of every school that you know, the, the high school seniors had, um, had accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... But they didn't put anything up for high school seniors that had a job lined up after school or had an apprenticeship lined up or something like that, you know, which I thought, you know, at the time I didn't think anything of. But looking back, I mean, like, how condescending is that to the kids who maybe they weren't great students or maybe they were and they just knew that they didn't want to go to college, you know. I mean, I had a friend who didn't do well in high school and he went to be a mechanic. I mean, he's been making money for six years while I've been putting myself further and further in debt for six years. Yeah, and he you probably know? has a house. He probably has a nice car. Yeah, but he, they didn't They didn't put something on the wall saying, hey, look, you know, this guy's going to work for these guys, you know, doing this position. They didn't mm-hmm. put that up. They didn't care. I mean, like, it's it's such a stigma to, to not go to college. It's bullshit. It, it makes me very angry. Yeah, it makes I don't, me very angry. I'll say this. I don't think it's done on purpose in, in the – in the high in your high school, I don't think that was done on purpose to make people want to go to college, but I think that the college system has done a very good job. In I mean, I don't think anyone was sitting around going, "We're going to put these up and not these because we want people to go to college." But that's yes, the, it's the general. I mean, it wasn't a malicious intent, but that's the atmosphere. That's that's correct the culture that we live in, and that has been that has been influenced by the fact that universities do very good marketing and they convince you that you should be going. Mm-hmm to college what they don't tell you is that you should sit down in a dark room and ask yourself what do i want to do with my life you know and in a sense i think a lot of students use the college years as a place to explore those questions but they shouldn't be charged sixty thousand dollars every year for doing it yeah you know one thing that i thought was really i was talking to some people in the education system recently and one one thing that people brought up as a as a potential way a mechanism by which you could allow kids to try college but not put them in so much debt is to offer full reimbursements for the first year of college if you drop out or if you leave after the first year so i don't know i mean for me i didn't get much out of college until probably my the end of my sophomore my junior year my freshman year of college, I really didn't get much out of it. You know, uh, I no. took I took the required courses I had to take, 
I hung out with the same people I met the first day. You know, I didn't really learn anything different about myself. I didn't have, I didn't mature at all. For me, college really became a thing that was worth it in junior year, I think, because that was the point where I started learning about myself. I started putting myself in different situations and actively trying to grow as a human being. It, I'm curious. Do, do you think that that is because – here's what I always say. My wife disagrees with me completely because she is an economist and she's an accountant and she looks at numbers. I don't look at numbers. So here's something I noticed. By no way, in no way were the, the numbers associated with my loans, the amount of money that my loans were worth, in no way was that shoved in my face anywhere. In no way did anyone come up to me and say, Brendan, you just paid $20,000 this year. Yeah, and, no, it wasn't shoved in my face. And my, I mean, the only, I, time, the only time you interact with it is twice a year, right? When you go online to your Fed loan, whatever, and you type in a thing and say, okay, cost calculator, I'm going to need this much money. And then you answer a few questions, and then they send it to your school. Yeah. Twice a year that you interact with it. And I should say, because there's probably some people out there thinking, oh, well, your parents probably saw the numbers. All of my loans were not co-signed. I got them all on my own. My parents did not put their name on anything. They were It was all me, all the way. And never did I really look at the numbers and think, wow, I'm never going to be able to pay that back. And I don't feel that way now. I think eventually I'll, I'll be able to pay it back them. I don't have as much student loans as some other people. Yeah. I remember after I graduated, before I went to Rice, and I was sitting there, and like I went on because I was like, okay, now I need you know, loans for, for grad school. And I looked at the loans I already owed, and I just had like this moment where I just said, I was like, oh, my God. You know? And I, I called my mom, and I was like, look at this. Like, I was like, how am I going to pay that back? You know, like I, just, I had probably like an hour where I was just like dumbfounded and like, like kind of in shock and, and, and definitely scared, you know, on some level. Like, how am I ever going to do that? And here I am. I need to take out more, you know. Like, this isn't even the final product. But now I don't. Now I don't feel that way. Now that I know what, I know what my final total is, and I know how much I have to pay back every month to get it paid off in ten years, um, and I know what career I'm, I'm set to to get what my paycheck will probably look like. Yeah, it's not gonna be easy, but I'm not. I'm not as terrified. I always tell people I don't regret. I don't regret going to college and getting the degree. It's what I wanted to do. It's the only way for me to be able to do what I want to do. It was a necessity, right? If you want to be an astrophysicist, the you, you, I mean, you could, you could sit at home, study astrophysics with all the resources in the world that you have online. You could get a knowledge for the stuff. You could develop an understanding better than anyone at college. You could even do it more efficiently if you wanted to. And then you could start doing research on your own. You could start publishing papers on your own. But the odds of you doing that and being successful at that are so incredibly small compared to yeah. if you go to a university, you get affiliated with research groups, you have funding provided to you, you go through all the proper channels – that's the easy way, if you will. I mean, it certainly wasn't easy, but it's the easier of the two ways. And so college was an absolute necessity. I don't regret going, but after going, I absolutely see how kids in every field are being scammed into paying way too much money for something that in many cases they don't need and won't use. And it's kind of sickening. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't take the opportunities available to them at university. I mean, there's so many clubs you can join, so many dumb classes you can take. 
had so many experiences you can have. I mean, I got to travel abroad twice in my time at Leica, which was amazing. And I minored in German, and that was the best decision I made in college. I mean, I love my physics and astronomy and learning all that. But it was stuff I was already interested in, stuff I already knew about, stuff I knew I was going to know about. You know? Mm-hmm. The German minor was so great because you know, a lot of times we just sit in class and we just discuss topics and social topics and history. And, of course, there's a lot to unpack with German history. Um, you know, we watched these foreign films that I would have never watched that just brought up different attitudes and ways of being and ways of thinking that are completely normal for other people and totally foreign to us. You know, there's, there's books I read and, and songs I listened to, movies I watched that I never would have thought about anyway. You know, I don't know. We watched a lot of David Lynch my senior year. Man, if you never watched David Lynch movies, go watch David Lynch. That guy is incredible. And it will... He makes movies that like will leave you confused Sad, angry, I mean, just feeling everything, just feeling numb by this, by the end. Blue Velvet, watch Blue Velvet. If you're listening and you haven't watched Blue Velvet, man, make make a Saturday night for yourself, put away your phone, close the windows and the blinds, just put on that movie, and for two hours don't do anything but watch it, and then afterwards just turn it off and you're just going to sit there in this weird, emotionless, just like, raw state for an hour. Like, it's crazy. And those, those are the kind of experiences that I wouldn't have gotten had I not gone to college. You know, I could have learned... All the technical stuff I needed to, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't be the person I am if I hadn't gone to school. Yeah, I hadn't had those experiences, and that is worth every every damn cent that I paid for that degree. Things like that, it's it's priceless. It really is. But how many kids do you think are in college right now who won't have who, those experiences? Who a lot, a majority. I think. Yeah, and that's. I the think problem. colleges don't do a good enough job of pushing that on people. To enforce, you know. It's probably what they bring up in that in the book you were talking about. You know, college is a place to go and break out of your bubble and get out of the norm and go and do completely weird things that you will never have the chance to do again. You know, mm-hmm. to to sort of break yourself down and build yourself back up again. And that's that's a huge aspect of college that gets totally overlooked by so many people. That that's what really makes me sad. Yeah, well, that's why I talk about the the the. That's why I bring up like gender studies in particular because. That's a, a area of, of the university system in today's world where I feel like that formative breakdown of ideas isn't happening. I feel like new ideas aren't being challenged. They're just being accepted because you don't want to look like the person who's being discriminatory. You don't want to be the person who says, wait a minute, is the gender pay gap really due to there being a patriarchy, to there being a systemic group of men who are holding women down? You don't want to be the person that says that because you don't want to be the person that they all look at and be like, you're a sexist. You know, you're yeah. just a sexist. You don't want to be that yeah. person. But you should, there should always be a dissenting opinion like that. You know? Yes. Whether they're right or not, someone in the beginning should dissent and, and play devil's advocate. Because if, you, if your ideas are up to snuff, then it doesn't matter. And you'll be able to prove them wrong. If they're not up to snuff, that's going to show it. Exactly. I agree completely. Um, yeah. So... That boggled my mind, though, to, to bring it all back together. $5.7 billion, I want to say this to, to be perfectly clear so everyone hears me. $5.7 billion would pay off less than one-half of 1%, 0.5% of student loans in America. That should make you think, wow, there's a problem. And there is a problem. And the problem is mostly due to completely unregulated markets. 
the fact that students can go get loans for however much they want and in, and people will charge them high interest rates and people will exploit them because they don't know much because they're not familiar with the types of interest rates they should be getting. Colleges don't sit down with you and say, wait a minute, you shouldn't be paying $40,000 for a music degree because you might not ever be able to get a job to pay it back. Yeah. And it's a, it's an issue. Uh, we should talk about one more thing before we go. Yeah, well, we should talk about two more things. I want to talk about FRBs, and we need to do questions, Brendan. Oh, yes. Your, audience, your faithful Patreon supporters. That's true. Good point. I'm glad you... Uh, I would have forgot again. I know you would. I would have had to record a special episode to answer the questions. At so, some point, you're going to have to just do all the questions for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> so normally I inter- I disperse the questions throughout different episodes, but I haven't had any guests get back to it. I have one scheduled for the end of January. I have one scheduled for yeah, I was going to say, next you're, week. you're interviewing me quite a lot. Where's all the, where's all the good guests? No, I, I have guests. sent out 10 emails this week. I think my suspicion is that this is a very busy time for people in the world of academia. And this is a time where everyone's sort of getting back from vacation. They're trying to get their lesson plans put together. They're trying to meet with all the colleagues that they haven't met with in three weeks. They're trying to do all the stuff that they've been putting off for weeks while they were on vacation. And so most people are like, all right, I can't do anything else right now can't do anything else right now you know but the canadian telescope chime which is a really cool name for a telescope what's it stand for canadian that- hydrogen intensity mapping experiment cool. That's cool. suck it you know <laughs> just suck it you know because you asked me that because you wanted me to not know it yeah I did. so do me a real favor you know <laughs> here's what i need you to do is this the tele i'm looking at this picture is this it What's it look this like? Is, Does it look like a half pipe? Yeah, it looks like a whole bunch of half pipes laid together. That's it, yeah. That's cool. Interesting. Yeah, it's incredibly cool. Um, well, Chime was not made to detect fast radio bursts. And for those of you that don't know what a fast radio burst is, it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a burst, which means incredibly high energy, so lots and lots of stuff at one time. It's radio, so it's radio waves, and it occurs on the order of milliseconds, okay? It's a fast radio burst. Some object out in the universe is throwing off tons of radio waves, tons of radio emission on incredibly short timescales, and we have no idea what it is. We have some theories. We suspect that it is a high-energy phenomena, which is counterintuitive because radio waves are low-energy waves, but based on the way in which the radio waves are emitted, we suspect that it is a high-energy phenomena, so something like the formation of a black hole, something like a supernova, but not those things because we've detected those things in other wavelength regimes, and we have not detected a fast radio burst to accompany them. So what CHIME has detected is 13 more fast radio bursts. Which re- what's really cool about CHIME, though, in this particular detection is that This was a test run. This isn't even full capacity. Chime will get much better. Hey, driver, hope you crash, you know? 
hope you have insurance because I want you to ram into a tree. Um, anyway. Wait, so, so okay. You said this was a test drive. So is the telescope not at full capacity yet? That's correct. It is yeah, just doing. I, yeah, I, that's what I'm looking up right now because I hadn't heard about this telescope and I wanted to know when it was built. Yeah, these test runs were done, I think, in August. Okay. And it will be fully operational soon. And when it is fully operational, you can see that it's a, it's a half pipe, right? It's essentially a bunch, a collection of what look like a bunch of half pipes. And these half pipes, they don't steer, they don't move. You can't point them at stuff. Instead, they will look directly up as the sky spins overhead. And they will analyze essentially the entire northern hemisphere sky every single night, every single day, over and over, the same exact spot, over and over. And we suspect that at full capacity, we will be able to detect hundreds of FRBs. And when we can detect hundreds of FRBs, maybe we can learn something about what they are. Up to date, we've only detected about 50 or 60. The 13 that were detected by Chime bring that number up to about 70. 70 FRBs that we can determine were actually fast radio bursts coming from somewhere in space. One of the cool things about those detections is that we detected one repeating FRB. Well, this is this is the second. Right. One. We've detected one before. We detected a repeating one so, before. And so this is because some people, I've talked to some people about this, and there was a whole bunch of articles posted saying aliens you know are aliens trying to contact us um and it was based it was because of the second repeating frb so what is why are people so interested in that why would they think it's aliens what how does an frb repeat well we don't understand the mechanism the difference some frbs tend to be just bursts or one-time shot they don't appear again we don't detect them in the same area of the sky again they shut off they go bloop and then no more some frbs happen repeatedly on a repeated signal they don't though repeat like you would think a pulsar repeats a pulsar never shuts off essentially it just keeps going blip 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 repeated over and over it's a spinning neutron star fast radio bursts though the repeating ones in particular i think this repeating one what happened was it repeated a few times but it's not repeating continuously you know like, if you look at it today, you probably won't see it repeating. It just goes blip, 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 done. So it's, so it's not a periodic thing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's periodic while it happens, but it's nonlinear. So, so it sends out the same signal. So that's how they know it repeated? It was the same like, characteristic signal? of, of From this, the same location of the sky. From yeah. the same, so same signal from the same location? Yes. But it repeats at, at non-regular intervals. It repeats at regular intervals while it repeats, but it shuts off eventually. Does that make sense? Interesting. I think maybe it's an important distinction. A pulsar. So, is... so the signal that you get from the FRB is not just a one shot and you're done. It's a Some, repeating signal. All of all of them are one shot and you're done, except for two. The two that we've detected, they're periodic while we observe them but we can't observe them forever. They eventually shut off. Are you having trouble so, wrapping your head around that? Yeah, so maybe I just fundamentally misunderstand. So Okay, so imagine like... The signal that you get from the FRB is a repeating signal. That's I'm not understanding what okay. you're saying, that it's it's repeating while you're observing it. Yes, let, let's, let's imagine this. I'm out in interstellar space and I have a flashlight. Okay. 
a normal FRB would be this. You're looking at me with a telescope. I have the flashlight shut off. I click it on for a millisecond. I click it off. You see the emission. You go, oh, there was a fast burst from that location in the sky. The repeating FRBs, I don't know about the first one, but the second one, I believe, behaved like this. You're looking at me out in interstellar space. I have a flashlight. I turn it on. I turn it off. 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 It stays off. Okay. Okay. So for a couple seconds, you detected a periodic signal. I was turning the thing on and off at the same period over and over, but then I stopped turning it on and off. You don't detect it anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Now, why are people so interested in this being an alien detection? One of the reasons is that anytime we find something repeating in nature, we tend to think it's aliens. This same thing happened with pulsars when we first detected them, when Jocelyn Bell first detected them in, in like 68 or, or 67 or whenever she detected them. We thought the same thing. In fact, we even named the first pulsar source LGM-1, Little Green Men 1, as a joke because we were like, wait a minute, could this be aliens? Here's the – imagine us, right? Imagine we were going to be creating an FRB so that other – other uh, we could probably do that. We could probably create really – maybe not with the same burst that we're seeing, but we could feasibly create some emission mechanism where we release radio waves at timed intervals you know, out into the interstellar space. And then some aliens far, far away were going to observe us. What would they see? Well, here's the first thing they would see. Well before they received our FRB signals, they would receive other radio signals that we had emitted. They would receive our replays of I Love Lucy that we broadcast over the air. They would receive Hitler's speeches from World War II. They would receive um, telephone communications. They would receive all of this well before they saw our FRB. So the question of, wait, are we detecting aliens? Probably not, because if they are emitting radio waves at timed intervals, chances are that in their evolutionary history, they were emitting other radio waves too. And we would probably observe those radio waves before we observed the FRBs, because after all, what do radio waves do? They all travel unless, at the same speed. Unless the civilization that we're detecting is far enough advanced that they've closed off all those radio signals that we were just sending off, because we've started to do that, right? Where we, we send much less out than we used to. So they've gotten to the point where they've closed off all those those errant radio signals that are leaking out. And the only ones they let out are the uniform ones that they use for communication. I don't know Boom. if we have. Boom! Tinfoil hat right there. I don't know if we have stopped emitting radio signals off of I, We haven't stopped, but I, I believe we, we slowed down on the amount of junk radio signals that we send out. Well, I, I don't think that's an. Uh, I don't think that's because of efforts in trying to stop i think that's because we stopped using radio waves for communicative abilities yeah no i'm not saying the reason we i'm saying the reason they would do it is because they've realized that they realized the exact problem that you just, that okay. you just described yeah people I mean, are going to hear all this junk before they get the good stuff and how are they going to separate the weed from the chaff so to speak so they've gone okay if we're going to try to communicate with with radio bursts and this sort of stuff we can't let out any junk radio signals. The only thing we let out can be the ones that we intend to let out that are communicative in nature. That's possible. Boom. That's that's what's happening. But and I think I think these FRBs are interstellar Morse code 
for intelligent life forms. And this is just normally we just get the one blip, but this is like the you know the dash dash or something that we're getting this time. That's what it is. Oh. You heard it first here, folks. That'd be this is a whole bunch of them communicating back and forth to each other. Yeah, just picking up pieces well, that's, of it. That's the one thing that would be interesting. Um, actually, something else would be interesting is uh, these these some of these FRBs we detect are coming from very very far away in space billions of of light years in some cases and so if these were aliens they would be incredibly advanced by now uh so advanced that maybe we should be scared that they had somehow figured out incredibly efficient and quick ways to travel about the universe they've got some wormholes they're just going to use warp drive and they'll be surrounding us tomorrow afternoon imagine where we'll be in a billion years dead for starters right (laughs) most likely yeah the Do you sun? think we'll have built a wall in a billion years? I think we will have built... Mm, let's see. Well, I think the tide is going to turn, and Canada and Mexico are going to say, you know what, let's build the wall, and they're going to build us in. <laughs> you know, and then Europe is going to build us. We're just going to be built in, probably. We're going to get taught a lesson, and no one's going to import <laughs> anything, and they're just going to allow us to die for being ignorant pansies. I think that's a fair a fair punishment. How would that be? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, FRBs are definitely interesting. Some of them are, In fact, I encourage anyone listening to listen to the Duncan Lorimer episode. I think it's number 15. He is the man who discovered the very first FRB. And we have a great discussion about that. If you want to learn more about FRBs, I would point you to that discussion in particular. It's quite a, quite a good episode. And he can and he can elaborate on some of the more fine details of these things because he studies them. Um, whereas I don't necessarily study the, them. The first ones were called Lorimer Bursts. Yes. Right? Yeah, the very yeah. first one I ever discovered was called a Lorimer Burst, named after him. And it's a, it's a phenomena. It's one of the few phenomena that we really have no idea what it could be. We have... Zero idea. But the fact that it repeats, and the fact that we detect some of them that don't repeat, can really help us determine whether or not these are even the same objects, and we don't think they are. We think these are two separate objects. The ones that repeat are not the same as the ones that don't repeat. There's a different mechanism at at play. And once Chime starts finding hundreds of these things, we can start to, to... hopefully narrow down our theories and determine what the hell they actually are. Yeah. But, all right, we should get to Patreon questions before I forget. Yeah. So we have two questions that I saved in particular for you, Nate, because I know that you are more active in this field than I am. So I'm hoping you can, you can answer them more cleanly than I. The first is, to what extent can engines on rockets be improved? Uh, So I don't know much about propulsion, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit I know, and I would encourage you to do a lot of Googling on your own. Um, I believe chemical engines, chemically speaking, uh, which is what we use primarily, uh, it's what we need to get through the atmosphere and out of Earth's gravity well. It's the only thing that we have right now that has an energy density and is safe enough for us to use. Uh, that would provide that that energy. Um, 
the engines on the space shuttle, I think they were called RS something, I don't remember the number, um, I believe were some of the most efficient chemical rocket engines ever created. And I think even the ones that a lot of companies use, I think, I think Falcon SpaceX might have, the Merlin engines might be at the same level or just beat it. But I think that's basically like the gold standard is the shuttle rocket engine. So when it comes to chemical engines, I don't think there's a lot more that you can do to make them more efficient. No, chemical engines are, are not – I think that chemical engines will not be our future. I don't think so. Either. That's and, clear, and, right? and, that's, and I should preface that by saying that chemical engines are not efficient. No. They're, 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 they're at the point where they're as efficient as, efficient as we can make them. But that still does not mean that they're efficient by any means. They're still very inefficient engines. It's just like it's just like uh, the internal combustion engine in your car. It's terribly inefficient, but we've gone about to the limit of how efficient we can make them. Mm-hmm. When it comes to other propulsive technologies like EM drives, and I, I don't even really know what all is out there that they use for interstellar space um, or or just outer space in general. I don't know what type of engines are primarily used or how efficient they are. They're certainly more efficient than chemical engines, but I don't know how efficient, how much more efficient we can make them. So yeah. it's sort of a long-winded, half-assed answer. Yeah, and uh, this kind of actually gets into the second question what I'm about to say. The second question is, what propulsion technology are you excited about? I think that to, to the first question, the answer is, to what extent can engines, rockets be improved, engines on rockets be improved? If we're going to continue using chemical engines, not really. Not really going to be very much improved. But to the second question, what propulsion technology are you excited about? To tie these two questions together, there's a lot of potential out there. One, so the one that I that I think is really cool, that's getting a lot of testing right now, um, is the light sail technology. Yes, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. So that's and that's really the only one I really know. That one and there's a laser one that's sort of the same way. But anyway, light sail works as a you have a very small, 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 small satellite, like, like centimeters basically. It's mm-hmm. tiny. And what you'd want to do is probably have a swarm of these or something. And they have this um, folding, I don't know what you call it, shield sort of thing. Uh, so it, it goes up and it's this really thin layer of material and it unfolds. And it's huge. I mean, like, like meters, um, square meters. It's, mm-hmm. it's giant. Um, and basically what it does is it uses the photons from the sun uses the momentum of those photons hitting that shield and basically propels the light sail forward and the satellite forward. So if yes. you get a whole swarm of these, they could get up to, uh, maybe I'm just throwing out numbers here, but I feel like I remember like 20% the speed of light is like the max speed yeah. that it could go. One of the issues is that as you get further away from the sun, the amount of momentum that you're, you're but, receiving... But your speed doesn't slow down. Correct. So the speed that you've gotten up to, you're going to maintain that velocity. Right, right. So can these things be used for interstellar travel? Mm. So I know one of those missions is to go to what, Alpha Centauri or, or something. Yeah. Some stars like four light years away, and I think it'll take – if it works the way they want it to work, it'll take like 30, 40 years to get there or something like that. Um, and then, of course, it would take four years for the information to be back to be being back to us. And there's no way to really control these satellites, so they just keep flying off past them. Yes, which but is, we would which get is our first... another one of the issues associated with them in particular that makes me a little wary about them is that we don't know completely how populated the outer solar system is. And these solar sail technologies are incredibly delicate, 
right? You're talking about a very thin layer of material that's going to be absorbing photons. So micrometeoroids hitting these would be a, a huge danger and a real, yes. a real danger. Yes, any sort of particle would be a real problem for this sort of technology. Uh, w- one of the other things that's being developed is not necessarily new propulsion technology, but a new take on rockets in general, and that's nanotechnology. Right right now we have these huge bulky rockets. It's really hard to get them up to the momentums, to the velocities that we need to make them travel around different places. But if we can start going to what is what's it called? Project Starshot? Is that the thing Stephen Hawking was working on before he died? Yeah, yeah, Project Starshot. So this project would take a bunch of tiny like nanobots, if you will, and and it's easier to propel nanobots to high velocities because you have such small mass it's easy to give them a lot of momentum compared to giving momentum to you know the space shuttle or or whatever and so nanotechnology is something that you will see in future explorations of space you will see tiny 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 little little devices i don't even want to call them rockets really uh and they just so this this is the same project that we're talking about here um you would you would break through starshot has um these tiny chips mm-hmm. essentially the satellites. So they're very small, but they, yeah. they're attached to these light sails that would propel them along. Correct. Yep. But yeah, you'll see a lot more a lot more small technology. I mean, we sent two CubeSats um, to a company, the Mars Lander, uh, in, in December. Which one was that? The, uh, I can't think of the name of the lander right now. Insight. Insight. Yeah. So there were two, and they were essentially just relay satellites, communication relay satellites, but they were CubeSats. And for those who don't know, CubeSats are... Tiny satellites, they're in units of uh, it's 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters is the base unit. And then you can add to that and make them larger. Um, and those are ma- mainly used for low Earth orbit and um, swarms and communications and, and scientific testing for universities and things like that. That was the first time they sent them interplanetary and it worked out really well. So I'm sure we'll see more CubeSats being sent along. Um, another thing that I should mention while not a new technology per se, it's just a new method uh, with chemical rockets, is basically right now you have to take all the fuel that you're going to use on your mission with you from the very get-go. So from countdown, hitting zero, KSC, all the fuel you're going to need is already on your rocket. So what they want to do is, and they're starting to work on this, NASA's building the Gateway Project around the moon, which is going to be a satellite or a space station that orbits the moon. China's looking at, at developing moon and and resources on the moon to basically create a fuel depot. So you take only the fuel you need to get out of Earth's gravity well and get to the moon, and then you refill your rocket with all the fuel you need to go to Mars or Jupiter or wherever the, the spacecraft is headed. And so that's a way to sort of make space travel a bit more efficient and uh, less costly mm-hmm. and, and waste less fuel. Yeah, and one of the other things that you, you will see getting developed is fusion technologies. So being able to harness the same mechanism that creates the energy at the center of the sun, being able to recreate that in a lab, that's been being worked on for decades now. Forever. Um, plasma physics is is at the heart of trying to understand this problem, and we will eventually get closer to being able to do that. And maybe in our lifetime we'll get to the point where we'll, we are able to, under certain circumstances, recreate nuclear fusion and when we can do that we'll be able to generate tons and tons of energy hopefully in a setting that will be able to propel spacecraft at speeds that right now we just simply can't get with chemical rockets 
So I think that that's what, what I'm most excited about, I would say, to answer the question explicitly, going forward is nanotechnology that uses light sail technology to get going incredibly fast because I think that that is the thing that in our lifetime we will be able to begin to image other uh, solar systems far away. Not necessarily across the Milky Way galaxy, but maybe but if we can get next door. Images or just some data from close up near another star. I mean, yes. that, that's incredible. And to address the thing I said earlier, where you have to be careful that these nanobots or these solar sails are going to come in contact with micrometeors, I should say that the idea is that you send out a fleet of them. You don't yeah, just it's send not just out one, one or two. You're going to send out hundreds. Yes, and you send them all out, and that way, hopefully, you know, you get some that make it to the destination. And so that's what I'd say in the most immediate future. That's the thing I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I think that's probably the next breakthrough sort of thing. I mean, man, imagine if we send a human-made craft to another star. That's like, oh, that's cool. And so it's very cool. Down my spine. It's very, and it's it's also really cool because we're beginning to de- to detect exoplanets around our nearest neighbors around the stars that are very close to us so not only will we get to see what another solar system looks like but we might get the the potential to image planets that are not orbiting our own star and that is incredibly cool